Lee, let's start off by talking about your column in California on your mind, which explores Governor Newsom's desire for California voters to pass Proposition 1, a $6.3 billion bond issue to build additional drug treatment facilities and permanent housing for the homeless and those with addiction and mental health issues. Mind you, that $6.38 billion will be added to an existing $1.6 trillion debt. Lee, you write, it is about time that California politicians realize addiction is a huge part of homelessness which is a view that has been flat out denied within progressive policymaking circles for years. But I see no reason to accept that passing Proposition 1 will be anything more than doubling down on California's previous failures to sensibly deal with these issues. Lee, why do you believe it's just doubling down on previous failures? The homeless issue obviously needs to be dealt with, especially considering businesses and people are leaving the state in droves. Yeah, Jonathan, um, homelessness is one of the most important issues facing Californians. And the reason I say that it's doubling down on previous failures is because when I look at the historical record of the amount of spending that's been done on homelessness and how much has moved the needle, it's very difficult not to say that the state's completely bungled this. Uh, you know, Jonathan, give you an example. Um we have about 181,000 people who are homeless in the state today. Um, about 70% of those people have substance abuse and or mental health disorders. Um, those, those really go hand in hand. Um, so 70% of 181,000 is about 125,000 people. And the state just flat out denied that homelessness was a mental health substance abuse issue. Since 2016, the state has insisted that spending on homelessness has to satisfy what is called housing first principles. And that's this idea that if you just build housing, then homelessness will be taken care of. But homelessness is predominantly about substance abuse and mental health issues. So it's not as if you build four walls and a roof that voila, all the problems are solved. Um, but that's that's the principle that has been guiding state policy since that time. Um, we have had an increase in homelessness um, to 181,000 today. Uh, there were 115,000 in 2015. So we're simply failing at dealing with this. We've spent $20 billion on homelessness in just the last five years during Gavin Newsom's tenure as governor. Um, so we're not diagnosing the problem correctly. Um, a lot of those dollars are being burned up and God knows where. Newsom and Democratic legislators fought for years against an audit that would identify where the black holes are within the housing spending complex. They finally approved it. Um, but this is just flat out wrongheaded. Um, Proposition one is $6.4 billion. Um, and, you know, one issue about the proposition is that we had a $100 billion surplus just a year and a half or so ago. Um, that had just been 6%, 6.5% of the surplus that we had. So voters should be asking, where did that money go? And why are you asking, for, asking me for more money now? Um, and what voters don't know is that once you properly account for unfunded liabilities, you know, in particular pension liabilities, which are nowhere close to being fully funded, California's existing state and local debt is $1.6 trillion. That exceeds the annual GDP of all but 13 countries in the world and works out to about $125,000 per household. 
Um, we do need to address mental health and substance abuse issues. There's no question about that, but there needs to be local government input into where that's done. Right now, local governments will have no say in how that's done or where that's done if the proposition passes. We can't continue to build million dollar, 600 square foot housing units for the homeless, which is what's being done right now. So, and we also need to insist that those receiving treatment, you know, commit to becoming responsible and taking and, and taking responsibility from themselves um, and not continuously uh, asking for support without being part of the solution. Um, so I see this as I see this as wrongheaded, and it's money that the state simply doesn't have with within the within respect of trying to issue more bonds. Yeah. So Lee, there's an old saying that a, a cynic knows the the price of everything and the value of nothing. Uh, so allow me to be very cynical for a minute here. Uh, the state of California, Lee, has spent I think something like twenty billion dollars now in the past what four to five years on homelessness. And what lead do we have to show for progress after spending $20 billion? Well, uh, Gavin Newsom's office will say, oh, my goodness, just imagine what would have happened if we hadn't spent that money on homelessness. Um, you, know, what, one, <laughs> you know, what one can't, um, you know, we don't have the parallel universe. Um, but what we do have is that homelessness fell between the early 2000s up to 2015 when we when we weren't wide uh, spread imposing housing first harm reduction principles on the application of policy. Mm -hmm. The idea that we just build housing, everything will be fine. We're not going to demand much less even ask those who are dealing with substance abuse or mental health issues to take responsibility for their lives. And in fact, we're gonna ask people living in cities and people who are managing local governments to accept substance abuse as this is just part of these people's lives and you're just going to go ahead and accept that. And that vision, um, as much as some people might say, well, that just seems crazy. For those who don't necessarily say, oh, that vision seems crazy, we've tried the experiment. It's absolutely failed. Um, no other state is spending this kind of money and having such awful outcomes in terms of in terms of homelessness and the failure to deal with mental health. So yeah. Bill, there's, um, yeah, there, there's, there's not a lot to show for it. Uh, and the policy, the policy sphere needs to confront this. Um, no. It's a big, it's a big change that they even are now willing to agree that substance abuse is an issue within the homeless. Cal Supreme, 70% are dealing with this. Um, but they're not willing to change the, uh, the details of policy by saying, if you're gonna get our help, then you're gonna need to commit to become sober and take responsibility for your life. So that's nowhere within the policy. I don't think we should be asking people to spend more tax dollars on this without asking those who are receiving help to take to take personal responsibility. Now, let me ask you another question, Professor O'Hanian, since you're a noted economist. Um, there is an argument that this is how you go about dealing with homelessness, that homelessness is a lot of pathologies, a major part of which is mental health. And so thus, we will spend $6.3 billion, which actually is going to turn out to be $10, $12 billion by the time you put in the interest rates for bonds. California voters don't understand that a bond is the same as a credit card. Um there is actually uh, information on your voter guide, which explains this to you, but of course, people don't really read their voter pamphlets. Uh, but here's the question, Lee. 
when you look at homelessness, there is an economic component to this. Yes. And the school of thought, I think San Francisco State University did a study on this a year or two ago that said, look, a problem in California, it's not just, it's not an issue of drug use and it's not just an issue of mental health. It's also economic conditions. People can't afford to make a living. People can't afford homes as though people end up on the streets. So where's the economic relief, Lee? Yeah, California is incredibly expensive. The median home price is about $830,000. That's for single family home. Median uh, condominium townhouse price is somewhere around $650,000. So when you look at the number of people who can afford that type of housing, um, if you don't already own a house, then very few, very few people can afford that. And if we ask why is California so expensive to live in, and not just housing, but also utilities, electricity, natural gas, gasoline, are all among the highest in the country. Um, those are all policy related. Mm-hmm. California housing is so expensive because California policymakers have put up enormous regulatory impediments and delays in building that increase the cost of building just enormously. And if somebody's going, if somebody builds houses for a living. They're only going to bill them if they make if they make enough profit to cover their costs and cover their time and get a competitive rate of return on their investment. Those costs are extremely high. Those are all policy related. Bill, to be uh, absolutely honest with you, there are just a lot of people who are living in this state right now, um, and without going into you know without knowing the details of their previous past history and circumstances, there's just a lot of people here who simply can't afford to live here. Um, and you know, when you, when you, when you confront that homelessness is never going to get solved here because for every person you build a $800,000 million dollar unit. And if you're successful enough that they're, they, they end up becoming sober and are able to live in that unit, you can't build those for all 181,000. There just isn't enough money in the budget. And for every person that you put into that home, there's going to be more coming down the road who are going to become homeless, who are, you know, one one car repair or one um, one unemployment spell away from not being able to afford to live here. So when we think about, um, you know, we can blame politicians, uh, you know, California politicians until the cows come home from the mistakes they've made that have made California so expensive. That's on them. It's also on them that so many people are struggling to live here. But it's completely unfair to go back to taxpayers and say, we made a mess of this in so many ways. And now we're going to ask you not to clean it up once or twice or three times with the kinds of enormous budgets we've had and the enormous surpluses that we seem to have frittered away. We're going to ask you for even more money that we're going to use poorly and trying to deal with homelessness and drug addiction. Yeah, there's a, a couple other elements to this I think worth noting. One, Lee, is um, this really contrasts what the state did on COVID in this regard. Uh, COVID broke out and what uh, what Newsom of the government in Sacramento did was said, okay, we're going to let the 58 counties in California, each one kind of decide what path to go down. And that made sense. Why? Because COVID varied from county to county. Now, it personally drove me crazy because I happened to be in a very draconian county here in Santa Clara County, which was very harsh, very restrictive. You could literally walk across a county line into a different existence just based on a on you know case numbers and so forth. But 
Prop 1 is a different approach, Lee and Jonathan, in that what Prop 1 does is it revisits Prop 63, not to make our listeners too dizzy here, but this was a millionaire's tax uh, passed back in the early 2000s, and the money went to mental health care, and it allows counties to decide how to move forward on mental care. And that makes sense because a very rural county like Lassen is very different in its needs versus, say, Los Angeles County. So Prop 1 reverses that course, and it centralizes this. It runs it through Sacramento. So I'm not sure, Lee, if that makes sense. The other thing I know here. This is power politics played and simple in California. I've looked up the numbers on this, and I think the, the Prop 1 campaign, which is advertised aggressively in big markets across California, it has something like $16 million in the bank the last time I looked. Uh, I looked up the opposition campaign, $1,000 in the bank. Now, why such a disparity? This is something very important to Gavin Newsom. This is a legacy item. He dearly wants it passed. He's in the advertisements himself. If you oppose this and if you put money into it, you are now risking the wrath of the governor and the legislature, and he cannot operate. And to that, I would point you to page 15 on your voter's guide, where there is a rebuttal to the argument against Proposition 1. And included in this is a woman named Jennifer Becerra. She is the CEO of the California Chamber of Commerce. That tells you plain and simple, if you want to do business in Sacramento, you got to stay on the governor's good side. Oh, yeah. Power politics, 100 <laughs> 110%. And Billy, the proposition is 69 pages long. Yep. <laughs> it is incredibly obfuscatory. And even within those 79 pages, and as you mentioned, local governments lose a lot of control over this. And this is about state mandates. And this is about one size fits all policy. Within those 69 pages, it is not only incredibly opaque, but it's incredibly nonspecific about where these treatment facilities are going to be built, what's going to be built, how they're going to be built. And there's no specification for how they're going to be, how continuing staff and operating costs will be financed down the road. This is really for construction. This is really for building treatment facilities. And they should absolutely be built. They should be built at about one third of the cost that will, will occur under Prop 1. And they should be built in areas um, uh, they should be built in areas that I guarantee are not going to be chosen, areas that aren't so expensive to be built in um, and that aren't going to be, um, and then there, there's not going to be enormous um, pushback from, from local people who are going to be understandably concerned about having drug addiction treatment facilities right down, you know, right down their block. Bill, let's move on to your column in California on your mind uh, this week in which you discuss ca the Cal Exit 3.1 ballot measure, uh, which aims to establish a new nation of, quote, Pacifica along a coastal section of the present Golden State stretching north and south from the San Francisco Bay Area from Mendocino County through Monterey County, unquote. Uh, Bill, there have been similar movements in the past. Uh, could you maybe provide a brief history of them and explain why altering the state's government plan or framework is complicated, perhaps when advanced by ballot measure unconstitutional? Uh, people have been talking about breaking up California or breaking away uh, from the United States, gosh, going back to the 19th century. But uh, in more recent decades, and Lee and Jonathan, this seems to come up every decade, it seems somebody has a scheme uh, for what to do with California. I remember back in the 1980s, there was an idea that you just draw a line across the middle of the state, just bisect it, cut it in half, and have a north and a south. Uh, in more recent years, we had uh, the Cal Exit movement. Um, this came up after Donald Trump was elected, and this is progressives thinking we don't want to be part of a Donald Trump America. So we'll break away. Um, the uh, prominent venture capitalist Tim Draper came up with not one but two ideas for not seceding but breaking up California. First, he wanted to do it 
into six pieces. Then he wanted to do it in three itty bitty pieces. And uh, each time Draper ran afoul of, uh, well, he had a hard time collecting signatures. He got, uh, he failed to, to, to get it verified one time. So that fell apart. Uh, so now we have the new land of Pacifica. And uh, listeners note that as Pacifica ending with an A and not an O. So there is no clash with the uh, the beer company of the, uh, of, uh, of, of the, of the same name. Uh, but Jonathan, you're right. Pacifica would do the stretch of land from Mendocino to Monterey County. So this is the bluest of blue California. It would be a very liberal enclave. California would still exist, so you would not be uh, taking a star off the flag. It would just be a pared down, more humbled California, if you will. Uh, the organizers have done the math. They claim that California would come out with about 40 electoral votes, which would put it on a par with Texas, if you will. Um, so the question is, you asked, Will this move forward? Does it have a chance? The answer is no. Well, first of all, it it doesn't appear to be a very serious movement. Um, I think something like ninety two thousand people have signed up for the movement. Uh, Lee and Jonathan, we don't know how many of those ninety two thousand people uh, are in California. So, if this were to go on the ballot, you'd first have to collect about five hundred sixty thousand signatures. So, they would have to put money into collecting signatures. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, secondly, there's a constitutional question or not. The uh, state's legislative analyst office looked at this issue a few years ago with regard to CalExit, and it determined in its opinion, you look at the state constitution and the seems written pretty clear that if you want to really modify the state, if you want to change the state's existence, you have to do it through the legislature. You just can't have a simple vote of the people or you have to have a constitutional, constitutional convention which we haven't had in California since 1879. So uh, it is, in some regards, Bill Whalen wasting 1,400 words in the space of the Hoover Institution because it's not going to happen. But you know what, Lee? It's kind of fun to write about. Bill, um, do you do you know much about the people who are who are advancing this idea? Uh, not- I, know, I know a little bit, and they are colorful, to say the least. Um, one fella apparently has ties to Russia. He uh, There are questions about whether or not the Russians at one point were trying to uh, – uh, to get engaged in breaking up California, at least causing mischief. And I think he lived in Moscow at one port and his partner in this. And I think they have since uh, had their own secession from each other. They've broken apart. He has ties to Iran, apparently. So these are just kind of very shady characters. So it's not like uh, Tim Draper, who is a you know prominent California figure or any kind of vox populi. It is to borrow a term from Nancy Pelosi. It's kind of astroturf outrage, if you will. Um, well, you know, they're 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 uh, they're Marketing and public relations statement is just, uh, I mean, it's just honestly, it's just off the rails. Uh, so they state not being part of the U.S. will make uh, will make California less likely target of retali- retaliation by its enemies. Well, actually, let make it much more likely target <laughs> of attack. Um, and they talk about how California's electoral votes haven't affected presidential elections since 1876. Guess what? California has the most electoral votes of any state in that country. That's just completely silly. Uh, and then it talks about the need for um, you know European style single payer health care and uh, the need not to uh, drag us into um, free trade agreements, which you know which quote conflicts with our values unquote. Um, and Bill, you know they want to carve off the piece of California that they want to carve off is. An awful lot of income. It's uh, it would include the San Francisco Bay Area um, down through Silicon Valley. I, I believe stopping somewhere around um, Central California, maybe Morro Bay. It's right at the uh, uh, right at the bottom of the Monterey County line. So yeah, you're just about to get into SLO at that point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's <laughs> that's a lot of income, a lot of tax revenue. Um, 
it would take two thirds of both houses of Congress to approve this. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's an obvious non-starter. And then you know when when stuff when stuff when stuff like this pops up, you just wonder what the alternative what the ulterior motivation is for the people who do this because it's of course uh, it's of course uh, you know complete fantasy land. It is. You know, we got in this discussion with the Draper initiatives when you wanted to break California to six or three pieces. And one of the same questions, Lee and Jonathan, was, you know, California as a whole has all of these resources. It has natural resources, intellectual resources, energy resources. And when you start breaking these off, for example, if you, you know, break away Northern California from Southern California, what happens to the water relationship? And if you break away the eastern part of the state in the Central Valley from the western part of the state and the coast, what happens to food? And then likewise, what happens to, uh, you know, coastal access with ports and so forth? Uh, here you'd have a very narrow stretch, as Lee described it. Kind of look like a very kind of less long Chile, if you will, but still narrow. Uh, it would be very heavy on wealth, as Lee noted, intellectual capital. It would have it not have any natural resources. And the question which kind of interested me was how exactly it would govern itself. And that got me looking at the San Francisco election that's coming up, San Francisco uh, voting in the March primary as well. And Lee and Jonathan, I was interested in two ballot propositions that are coming up. One is Proposition B and one is Proposition E. Uh, Prop B would add more police on the streets in San Francisco. It would change law enforcement formula there. And Proposition E would give police more tools for things like drones and suspect pursuits. And this to me kind of is an instant question of how weary the San Francisco electorate is with crime. If they're willing, a city that historically has been very tough on cops, very wary of any kind of rough policing, if you will, if they've just decided enough is enough when it comes to, you know, to crime and theft and just wants to give police more tools. So, Lee, I think it's kind of an interesting folks popular election in that regard. Yeah, yeah, Bill, it is. Um, you know, interestingly, I did um, I did a piece with uh, CNN of all outlets about a year ago uh, about Calif about Cal if California were to secede, um, and the um, and the show this was for was called up was called Upside Down. Um, <laughs> uh, so so we got in some of the constitutional issues associated with this and just how difficult this could ever be, um, and the parallels with uh, with San Francisco are interesting because. You look at, um, you know, I have to think that the median voter in that city, um, um, probably a homeowner, they're not happy with the fact that the value of their real estate has dropped so much, that crime has increased so much. Uh, of course, we've talked um, a number of times about the deterioration of neighborhoods um, and, and large decline in quality of life reflecting uh, the large number uh, of people living on the streets there, which has been de facto um, just accepted uh, by policymakers and and how drug use has really has really hit the city. So um, I don't have a good sense of the um, of the mayor's race coming up uh, between Breed and um, how many, I, I, I can't recall how many um, how many people she's she's going to face. Uh, they're they're so challenging her, including a, a one a member of the Haas, the wealthy Haas family, coming after her. I think what's interesting mm -hmm. looking at in San Francisco in terms of elections. So the Wall Street Journal had a really fascinating piece on this about a week ago. Um, the wealth class in San Francisco appears interested now in attacking the political class in San Francisco. And what the journal reported, you have uh, some very wealthy tech people who are engaging in city supervisor races, and they want to kick out the incumbents and put presumably more moderate, more business friendly, just kind of more measured 
more sane, if you will, more common sense supervisors. And this is unusual because to the extent that wealthy people play in San Francisco politics, it's Mark Benioff, the Salesforce CEO, putting measures on the ballot. Uh, but they historically have stayed out of the nuts and bolts of San Francisco governing, if you will. But again, this is a sign, Lee, that, you know, again, enough is enough from their perspective. And they, and if you really want to go to the root cause of politics in San Francisco, you can go after the mayor, but really you want to go after the supervisors because it's the supervisors who you can count on each year for nutbag ideas. Yeah, the um, in a relative, you know, re relatively speaking, um, Mayor Breed has a much better understanding of what the challenges are, and uh, yeah, she's very much hamstrung by a very strong board of supervisors. Uh, and, and so, you know, it was really only a matter of time before people with money started pushing back against the Dean Prestons of that board. Dean Preston is, um, uh, you know, he he proudly he proudly likes to call himself a socialist. He's he's from uh, his background, um, including his family's wealth and his wife's wealth is enormous. Um, so, you know, it's, <laughs> it's good to have a lot of money when uh, you don't really need to make a living anymore. Um, and he's really been viewed, uh, including among people in the Democratic Party, as as an impediment to progress within San Francisco, both in terms of uh, crime, uh, police, um housing initiatives, um, many view him as standing in the way of development, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, among the progressive crowd, uh, development is not something they really want to see, because that means uh, a neighborhood is going to be given over to more, to, you know, to more, to more well-heeled tech people and more people that don't have their political views. Yeah, as for Linda Breed, uh, Lee, keep an eye on her and see if she also sort of moves toward the center as her election moves closer. Uh, it's worth noting that recently she came out in favor of the uh, ballot measure, which is in circulation right now, which would go after Proposition 47. Uh, for our listeners, Proposition 47 was a uh, criminal justice reform passed uh, years ago, which changed the uh, penalties uh, for grand theft in California, elevated it to $950 as a threshold. Uh, there's a school of thought that it is one of the drivers of this rash of uh, theft that you see in California. So now uh, this initiative would retoughen the uh, the penalties on that. Uh, she came out in favor of this Lee, so did the mayor of San Jose. And so you see this kind of frustration at the civil uh, city level. Interesting enough, by the way, Gavin Newsom has not said where he is on this initiative. But I think, again, you see a mayor like Breed trying to stay one step ahead of the mob on an issue like this and saying that, look, I get your frustration and, you know, I understand. Yeah, you're, you're, you're seeing this pushback. Um among local among local governance um you're certainly not seeing it uh, at the state level with uh, say attorney general rob bonta um who has gone out of his way to blame retail theft um on organized crime um and which just is just so tone deaf to me if some if someone has a retail store whatever it is this robbed um it doesn't really matter whether it's organized crime or the person is working for a gang or whether they're not working for a gang you've just you've just lost a lot of merchandise um it's harder it's, it's becoming harder to find people who are willing to work in retail and bill of course there was a that tone deaf response by um by newsom um not so long ago when he asked the poor uh, when he asked a woman working at a checkout line at walmart uh hey why didn't you go and stop that guy I wish he would have said, hey, governor, why didn't you go and stop him? <laughs> You're running the state. I'm just a cashier. I'm not getting I'm not getting paid to go risk my life and 
and and and tackle some guy who's walking out, walking out of my store with unpaid merchandise. Why don't you know? That's that's beyond my pay grade. You're the guy to go do that. By the way, it's a surefire sign of how much power Gavin Newsom has right now. You do not see the California Retailers Association leaking video. I guarantee that that is on tape somewhere because Target, this happened in a checkout line at Target, and Target has video cameras everywhere. I guarantee that's recorded somewhere. But boy, whoever released that would just be dead man would be a dead man walking if they did that. But it was a remarkable. Uh, uh, Tone deaf moment. We'll, we'll move on to the next episode here. It's not here in a moment, Jonathan. And here is Gavin Newsom standing in line. Uh, as he told the story, this was on a conference call regarding Proposition 1, getting back to our first topic. He was talking to other mayors, and uh, he just uh, just started riffing on a story that he claimed happened to him last uh, December, the holiday season, where he's standing in line at a Target. And he says he's looking ahead of him in line, and he sees this guy grabbing a bunch of goods and running off. And then he notices that nobody chases him. Now, this is kind of curious because the governor has a security detail. I guess the security detail is, you know, in the business of protecting the governor, not, you know, not enforcing other laws. Um, so Newsom is kind of shocked by this. And he asks the clerk, what's the deal? And then the clerk says the governor is to blame because of Prop 47. She didn't say Prop 47. And Newsom, this set off Newsom. So he starts going after her and just wants to start, you know, berating her and lecturing her on Prop 47. It was really just kind of a sort of quarter of Versailles moment, if you well and that you know Newsom is kind of a guess that somebody would actually rip off a store like that and not get policed and all that and boy it just really if somebody if I'm the prop 47 campaign the anti 47 campaign I'm just finding that videotape of Gavin Newsom but it went very viral when it came out by the way he did that zoom call so people just had a field day with it but yeah it was just one of those moments where just he realized that you know does the governor understand this has been going on for years now in his beloved San Francisco and even his you know adopted Sacramento so uh it'll be very interesting to see if that 47 measure qualifies and then if so what Newsom does on it well yeah uh, Bill just one last one last uh, postscript on that the the woman working as the checkout clerk at um at uh, was a was a Walmart camera Walmart was a target Walmart, was target. A target she when she found out when she found out that Newsom was gunner she said could I have my picture taken with you and he he declined and then just a couple of days ago I saw that he was doing plenty of photo ops at the Super Bowl including uh he and he and his wife along with uh, Lady Gaga and her husband or partner um so. Again, you know, what, 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 yeah, he he turns down the he turns down the opportunity for that poor girl to have her photo taken with him, um, and then apparently he complained to her manager about her blaming him for for the crime that's going through uh, the crime that's going through California. So go figure. Yeah, and he was upset that he had to pay three hundred eighty dollars for his goods, whereas somebody ran off. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> welcome yeah. to the welcome to California, Governor Newsom. Gentlemen, in a video posted on X ahead of the Super Bowl, President Biden called on companies to put an end to shrinkflation. Uh, that is when snacks like Doritos and sport drinks are coming in smaller amounts, but but charging consumers just the same. Uh, the message echoes Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren X post earlier this month. Uh, Bill, is this just an, another an attempt to shift the inflationary blame to the private sector? And, and to work in a California angle here. Uh, Representative Katie Porter um, has taken a similar anti-corporate approach in her campaign to become California's next U.S. senator. Is it working? Uh, I will defer to our distinguished economist on the economics of shrinkflation. Um, I think politically, it's kind of it's sort of like the pasta test of politics, Lee and Jonathan. You throw something against the wall and you see if it sticks. Uh, the Democrats, President Biden and uh, his supporters have a problem. Inflation is a real concern with voters. They're mad because they're paying more money. So what do you do? You have to 
go to the root cause of inflation, explain what you think the root cause of inflation is. And rather than uh, trying to fess up the fact that you spent a lot of money, poured a lot of money into the economy and overheated it and perhaps caused inflation by doing that, you turn on evil corporations who care not for how much money you spend. And on top of that, they're ripping you off by putting less goods in the products. Uh, I do know this. I'm it just kind of strikes me as very funny that if you work for Elizabeth Warren, there's some poor person in her office who is sitting there every day counting Doritos and counting Oreos. And, you know, where where do you find an eight-year-old bag of Doritos, by the way, to see how many were that? Maybe maybe go into Joe Biden's messy garage where the classified documents were. Maybe there's a bag of Doritos hidden in there. But um, no, I think this is just, it's, you know, when in doubt, when trying to shape, when trying to, you know, to, you know, trying to shift the blame, you scapegoat somebody else. And if you're Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, how convenient to take on, you know, evil corporations. Although I'm not sure how many people think the makers of Doritos and Oreos are evil necessarily. These are products that people like. This is not the same as going after big oil, let's say. But I don't know, Lee, you're the economist on this. Uh, what say you about shrinkflation? Yeah, that's uh, it's it's a nice way of kicking the can down the road and passing the buck, and and um, presidents aren't supposed to pass the buck. Yeah, at least that was that was Harry that was Harry Truman's line, um, and President Biden is passing the buck. He uh, poured an enormous amount of money into the economy at a time when unemployment was down to low fours, four point three, four point two, four point three percent. There was absolutely no economic reason to have um to have that enormous spending bill inflation went up to uh somewhere around eight percent maybe a little bit higher um and to give you an idea of just how much people worry about inflation a couple of days ago um we had the latest inflation numbers which were um 3.1 percent um stock market crashed on 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 that news. Um, and 3.1 percent is not it's it's about one percent higher than the fed's target but that just gives you an idea of just how sensitive people are to inflation. Um, so when I saw that commercial from Biden sitting sitting there saying, you know, if you're anything like me, you'll kind of cozy up to the screen with a, you know, with a little bowl full of snacks. And my goodness, they're a lot smaller than they used to be. Hey, come on, give me a break. We can't have corporations doing this. Um, and, you know, though, when you get to when you start having a president start worrying about the size of the bag of um, of Doritos or Tostitos or nacho, uh, the size of the nacho cheese sauce. Um, it's not very presidential. Um, it really well, we're, we're, we're into the land of Jimmy Carter and the tennis courts, I think, when you started to do that. But, you know, there is a California angle here, and this goes back to when California gasoline prices took off. And what did, what did Governor Newsom do? You blame big oil. It's a conspiracy. It's what corporations do. They're ripping you off. Yeah, yeah. So, so they, uh, so what? Well, I think there was an executive. Was there an executive order about a, a quote price gouging, uh, yeah. excess profits tax, and and uh, and this followed up um, what on the meeting that um, was at the Air Resources Board the, and and the other energy regulators had um, when you know quote big oil was supposed to come in and start telling them about their costs and their profits and their operations, and that was it. Does was. I believe no one, I believe no one from an energy company showed up to that meeting. So, yeah, it's uh, this really has nothing to do with the economics of inflation. This is uh, this is uh, this is purely let's try to pass the buck and let's try to get some sympathy for um, you know, for a president who is uh, not really facing his best moment right now. You know, I have a bag of Oreos sitting in my kitchen right now and looking at my waist right now. If there are four less Oreos in that bag, that's probably not a bad thing for me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're doing us maybe they're doing us a favor.
Uh, gentlemen, I mentioned Katie Porter earlier. She's uh, locked in a uh, four-way race with um, Barbara Lee and Steve Garvey um, and Representative Adam Schiff. Um, what's interesting is that this primary environment um, has been created by Proposition 14, which is a decade in the making, which created a primary process in which the two top vote-getters, regardless of political party, were, are supposed to face off uh, in the general election. The seeming intent of this new process for candidates to, bri to broaden their appeal beyond their own party and would thus have a moderating effect on their positions. Uh, gentlemen, has it has it worked out that way? Uh, Bill, why don't you start off? Uh, so I want to write about this next week for California Undermined. So Lee, I'm marking my turf here. Um, the Prop 14 was passed in 2010 with the promise that what it's going to do is because it changed California's primaries from two parties to one one vote where the top two vote uh, getters advanced in November, regardless of party affiliation. So you could have two Democrats, two Republicans, two independents, two Greens, two, two Martian party candidates, whatever you had, just the top two move forward. But part of the sale was that because candidates are going to have to think creatively, they're going to have to reach across the aisle and build coalitions of votes. So if O'Hanny and Whalen are running in different parties, they're going to try to appeal to other parties to, to widen their base. But if you look at the Senate race, and I watched the, uh, the debate was on Monday night, um, the second debate they had, it's very clear that Proposition 14 is not working in this regard. Uh, Katie Porter, who you mentioned, Katie Porter is running um, on a very simple campaign of standing up to corporate power. That's her slogan. If you go on her website, uh, she defines that as Wall Street, pharma, oil and gas and corporate lobbyists who cheat California. That is not a Republican oriented message in any way. She's going against her party's base. Adam Schiff is running ads against Steve Garvey, uh, attacking him. Why? because he wants Garvey actually to finish second. It's a very cynical ploy. His campaign is thinking the more we attack Garvey on the airways because Republicans despise Adam Schiff for uh, his role in pushing the Russian narrative and then being the uh, the manager of the first Trump impeachment, uh, Schiff's people figure that the more he um, attacks Garvey, the more it elevates Garvey. Very cynically, Garvey finishes second and Garvey has no chance of beating him in the general election. So they want to bump out um, Porter, if you will. Uh, Gar Garvey, meanwhile, he doesn't have much money in the bank. He's not doing much advertising. When you watch him on debate, he's not really reaching out to Democrats others. So to me, this is kind of the collapse of Proposition 14 in this regard. The promise hasn't lived up. And if I may make it even more local... Uh, we have an open congressional seat here in Palo Alto. Uh, Anna Eshoo uh, has had the job here for the last 30 years, so it's a very competitive Democratic primary. Again, everybody is just competing for the most votes in the Democratic base. There is uh, uh, one guy who brags about having worked in, I quote, Hillary Clinton's State Department, and another one who uh, brags about having, uh, uh, you know, going after Donald Trump on hate crimes. Nobody is running as a few fusion coalition uh, candidate. Uh, and Lee, this is sad. So, you know, in... Prop 14 just hasn't lived up to the promise of just really having kind of more creative, more fusion candidates. No, it hasn't. The um, there is a there is a germ of an idea within the proposition that it would be important to give California two high quality candidates, uh, irrespective of parties. So yeah, we can all see the we can all see the logic in that. It hasn't worked out that way. Um, go back to 2018. Um, when Tony Thurmond and Marshall Tuck ran for uh, state school superintendent, um, Democratic Party put all their resources uh, behind Tony Thurmond. Um, Marshall Tuck was a fellow who had a track record of actually running schools, creating enormous, I mean, just jaw-dropping improvement in school quality, right. even within two to three years of him taking over failed schools. Um, 
But he wanted some school reforms, um, the reforms that made his school so successful. Um, they were reforms that were anathema to teachers unions, other people within the education policy complex. So Tony Thurman barely won um, in 2018. And now you look at California schools today, five, uh, five plus years later, and um, performance is awful. $128 billion budget. One out of kid, one out of four kids are uh, are proficient. So, and now when we look at the uh, state senate race, um, yeah, Bill, I agree with you completely in terms of the uh, you know complicated, intricate strategy of uh, of Adam Schiff, um, hoping that he faces Garvey um, for w w among the top two uh, vote getters. And you know, Bill, more broadly, I also watched that uh, debate, and oh my goodness. Um, I saw one column, uh, one column said, what a bunch of nobodies. And without casting per personal aspersions on any of those people, um, I looked at Barbara Lee, who wants a $50 minimum wage and who has represented the city of Oakland for, for what, three decades, roughly three decades. And Oakland is frankly, it's a governance dumpster fire. I mean, Newsom sent the, Newsom sent the highway patrol in because crime has just gotten out of, so far out of control. Um, there's Katie Porter, uh, who is insisting California's problems have to do with big pharma and big oil and, uh, and Wall Street. And um, no matter what you think about big pharma and big oil and Wall Street, our problems are primarily we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, and you've got, you know, there's Adam Schiff, um, uh, of the uh, Steele dossier fame, who is uh, still insisting that his family escaped the Holocaust in the 1930s. Um, both of Schiff's parents were born in the United States long before long before the Holocaust ever occurred. Um, Steve Garvey is a fellow who's, uh, I think, is from an economic standpoint, he starts in the right place. He has just not said very much. Um, other than he seems to repeat himself an awful lot. Um, I think he's got some reasonable economic instincts. He's certainly not offering any detail. And oh my God, you know, perhaps the old saw about, you know, you get what you deserve in politics. Um, the idea that our, our <laughs> the idea that our junior center is going to be one of those four people. Um, well, it's probably, you know, it's probably going to be Adam Schiff. Um, it's not, uh, I'm not, I'm not particularly happy about it, my friend. One last note before we move on here, uh, and this is in defense of Proposition 14, having thrown it under the bus. Uh, it was, as I mentioned, it was passed in 2010, and that was after the previous election in which Arnold Schwarzenegger was reelected in a landslide, Arnold a Republican, and Steve Poisner was elected uh, state insurance commissioner, Poisner also running as Republican. So uh, in 2010, it was feasible for Republicans to win statewide offices. So you can defend this idea thinking that if Republicans are competitive, that will force Republicans and Democrats who are running neck and neck or in a viable race to have to think creatively. But what has happened since Prop 14 has been the collapse of the Republican Party, the further collapse of the Republican Party in California, where you just don't have competitive statewide races. So in defense of Prop 14, why think creatively if you're a Democratic candidate in particular, if the Republican you're running against is not going to crack 40% anyway in the race? So it's, it's an interesting idea, but it's just not really practical in today's California where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one. No, no, it isn't. And uh, in some ways, 14 years is not all that long ago. But on the other hand, I can't, you'll know this better than me. I don't believe there's one Republican who holds a statewide elected office. Not one. Not one. Gentlemen, yesterday saw the passing of C.C. Myers, a construction giant who the Sacramento Bee headlined as the rebuilder of California's freeways. 
Uh, gentlemen, do you want to say a few words about Myers, who he was and what you remember about him during, especially you, Bill, uh, what you remember uh, about him during your days working for Governor Wilson in Sacramento? Yeah, thank you, Jonathan, because I came to California in uh, February of 1994, uh, almost one month to the day after the Northridge earthquake, and California was in a world of hurt. And Leo, remember what happened? The quake hit, and the quake really laid waste to Los Angeles's freeways, in particular the Santa Monica Freeway, which is the east-west uh, artery, um, the end of the I-10 that runs across the country. Um, what to do is a real problem. California had a very bad history of rebuilding freeways in 1994. Uh, none of the uh, damaged freeways in the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, the North, the, uh, the Loma Prieta quake, none of those freeways, their construction had been complete, reconstruction had been completed by then. So this is how bad California was at freeways. So enter C.C. Myers in this regard. Um, I was working for Pete Wilson. He was running for re-election. He did recognize that this was crucial to his political chances. But Wilson also, to his credit, thought outside the box. And he thought, we cannot have a situation where the Los Angeles economy is losing at least a million dollars a day because the uh, uh, the roads are closed here. So what do we do? So he got busy. He did executive orders, which um, sped up the contracting, uh, cut through red tape. Then enter C.C. Myers, who ran a construction firm in uh, in California. Myers actually offered the second lowest bid to Caltrans. He was not the lowest bidder, but he had a record of working around California, and, Con and Caltrans trusted him. So he got the bid. He promised to rebuild in 140 days, and he actually did the job in 66 days, which was 74 days ahead of schedule. Uh, this is a great example of a carrot and a stick. The carrot in this regard was that for every day that Myers finished the job early, uh, he got an extra. He got paid extra for it, an extra two hundred thousand dollars every day that it was late he got charged an extra two hundred thousand dollars so that was part of that that was the carrot the stick was myers himself myers was kind of a giant of a man not in terms of record but also his stature he stood six foot four wore these uh rather intimidating ostrich boots so you'd wonder if it ended up in your backside if you offended him and he was down on the job lee and jonathan they're just constantly just kind of riding herd uh doing little things like giving them uh, coupons and you know cash and food to kind of keep them going, having his people working around the clock. And they got that job done lickety split fast, 66, um, 66 days, 74 days early. Lee, it might be the last example of California's government really in a time of crisis shining and outperforming in ways that people didn't expect. And sadly, we just passed the 30th anniversary of this. Yeah. yeah. Bill, what, what a remarkable story and what a remarkable example of, of economics in action. Yep. You provide the right incentives and, and good things happen. And uh, and CC, he got, he, you know, he received those bonuses and he was better off. California was better off. Um, what, what people fail to realize today is just the inordinate delays that we see um, are harming virtually everyone. Um, and Bill, you know, the um, the 405 freeway, uh, which is about 73 miles, one of the most highly traveled freeways in the state, um, you know, it, it, primarily in Southern California. Um, so 73 or 74 miles, um, it was built, and I don't, I don't, I don't believe he was involved with this. I think this may have been before his time, but just to give you an idea of just how fast things were done in California back in the day. Um, that was primarily built in about three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um Near my home, uh, which is near Santa Barbara, um, there is a stretch of the 101 where one lane is being uh, added to the northbound and southbound 101. Um, that's going to take, I think, close to a, 
close to 10 years to complete, uh, as opposed to an entire freeway being built. Uh, the whole thing wasn't built in three, three or four years, but most of it was. Um, so there's just, there's these just inordinate delays that drive up costs uh, amazingly. And when you ask who is, who is, uh, who's benefiting from these delays, really boils down to an environmental lobby that likes to challenge everything. Uh, and, uh, and otherwise there's, you know, there's enormous traffic delays now because, you know, lanes are closed and there's a lot of construction equipment around. Um, so, you know, back in the day, uh, Pat Brown and the, and the Republican legislature that he dealt with, uh, okay, we're going to do this. Let's do it fast. Let's do it efficiently. Right. If we don't, you know, if we don't have all the bells and whistles and all the frills, that's okay. But we really need to do this for the state. Um, it was done. Um, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, it's uh, very funny. I remember back in the day after this happened, it's a great government success story. And then suddenly the media started coming after C.C. Myers. They they discovered that you know he was due to make $15 million off this, but because of the bonus, the incentives, that actually was more like $30 million. So they started accusing him of profiteering. They didn't look at two things. Number one, they didn't look at the big picture, which is, yes, he got more money, but in the bigger picture, saved the state a ton of money by reopening the freeway, early helping the economy. But then secondly, U.S. voters, would you care if this man got an extra $15 million to have that freeway two and a half months open earlier? You get the answer on that. By the way, it's one of my favorite jokes in uh, in Sacramento back in the day. The joke was something like this. Why wasn't Rome built in a day? And the answer is because C.C. Myers didn't bid on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what people don't understand is that um... – the, the type of managerial talent and leadership ability um, is just is an incredibly scarce supply. Um, so when you have somebody like that who can get things done, yeah, you give them the incentive, you compensate them to get that done because there what it wasn't as if there were another ten or fifteen CC Myers waiting the wings who could have who could have been able to produce that safely and competitively within such a short period of time and get and get people back to be able to be uh, commuting on those freeways. Well, California needs all the C.C. Myers it can get these days and knock on wood that we don't have a situation like that again. It's been 30 years since uh, Northridge and even longer since Loma Prieta and California has been living on borrowed time when it comes to a very big earthquake and a very big population center. Yeah, we have. We'll keep our fingers crossed, not just only for the immediate consequences of those kind of disasters, but just for the complete chaos that will ensue if we actually did have to ha have to do a major rebuild of anything it would it will take decades as always this has been an hour of interesting and timely analysis gentlemen thank you for your time thank you lee thank you you've been listening to matters of policy and politics the hoover institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in america and around the free world please don't forget to rate review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it and if you don't mind please spread the word get your friends to have a listen the Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and X feeds. Our X handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on X. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on X. His handle is at Leander Skorohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of, of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.